Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I got a call earlier this week, and Wally advised me he was going to be out this Sunday, so he's asked me to, to fill in for him, and I told him I'd be happy to do that. We're going to be in verses 29 and 30 today. And we're going to be talking about God's master plan. We're going to be talking about God's purpose in the lives of his people. And as you've been talking in this class over the last several weeks, going all the way back to verse 18, Paul tells us that this life, the life of the believer, is a life in which God sets you on a trajectory that leads from suffering to glory. As you know, this life is not always pleasant. There are difficulties, there are frustrations, there are anxieties, there are periods of time in life in which we suffer. And so much of life is marked by that. But as believers, we know that our ultimate destiny is glory. All the way back in verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And so when you become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he puts you on a trajectory. He puts you on a road, a one-way road that ends in glory. And in these verses, in verse 18 through the end of the chapter, he is trying to provide us with a certain measure of assurance. He wants us to be confident that no matter what happens to us in this life, God is working all things for our redemption and all things for our good. In fact, that's what he says in verse 28, which is what you looked at last week. One of the most famous verses in all the Bible Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so what Paul is telling us is simply this, no matter how many negativities you have to go through in life, no matter how much suffering you have to endure, no matter how much disappointment you have to face, you are on a one-way road that leads to glory. And he is causing all things in your life to work for that ultimate end. Now, as Wally said last week, we have to be careful here because that promise is not made to every single person in the whole wide world. Paul tells us that that promise is specifically made for those who are in Christ, for those who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, for those who have repented of their sins, have been converted, who have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Those promises are reserved specifically for the children of God. And that's what he says. Look again in verse 28. He says, we know that for those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So there is a specific finite group of individuals 
that are the recipients of these promises and these blessings. He says, for those, and then notice how verse 29 begins, for those. Three times in those verses, he says, for those. And if you're in Christ today, you are included in that group. And so what I want us to do today is look at this this whole issue. Paul ends verse 28 by saying that these promises are for those who are called according to his purpose. That is, those who are, who are participating in God's master plan. From ages past, from before the foundation of the world, God issued a decree. He developed a master plan for this universe, a master plan for world history, and a master plan for your life. And he says... For those who are called according to his purpose, there are some very specific things that he works out in our lives, and all of these things ultimately work for our good. And that's what I want us to look at today, verses 29 and 30. Let's read these verses, and then we'll talk about them together. Romans 8, starting in verse 29. Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, there are five specific Topics, five specific issues that Paul raises in these two verses that are so vitally important for your life as a believer. And it's sort of like this golden chain. There are five links in this chain that we want to talk about uh, this morning. Notice in verse 29, he says, For those whom he foreknew... Now, when Paul puts this chain together with these five links, he starts all the way back in eternity past. He says his master plan for your life actually began before the foundation of the world. For those whom he foreknew. The Bible teaches that God knew you, that God knew you before you were ever born. Before your parents were born, before your grandparents were born, before Adam and Eve were created, before this world existed, God knew you. Listen to what God said to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1 verse 5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. Listen to what King David says over here in Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Listen, before this world was created, before the universe was created, God already knew you. Now you sit there and you say, well, I just can't imagine that. Well, we need to work on your imagination then. 
Steve looking at me like, don't work on my imagination. We're going to work on your imagination. Let me explain to you how it is that God knew you before you were ever born and before this world was even created. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart was probably the greatest composer of the classical period. Don't say J.S. Bach was, because he was in the Baroque period, all right? But Mozart wrote in the classical period, and he's probably the greatest of the composers of that era. He was born in 1756, died in 1791 at the ripe old age of 35. Now, best we can tell, Mozart composed 626 pieces of music. He was a genius, he was a prodigy, started writing music when he was a little bitty child and wrote music every single day until the day that he died. But here's what's so particularly fascinating about Mozart. Mozart composed all of his music up here in his head. He just wrote music in his head. He didn't have to sit down and write it all out. Now he would write it all out when he was paid to do it. Okay, but he wrote entire four-hour full-length operas in his head with every single violin, viola, bass, clarinet, every single orchestral uh, note was written down in his head. He wrote entire symphonies that way. He wrote concertos that way. He wrote sonatas that way. He had thousands of pieces of music in his head. And the only time he would write one down is when he was commissioned For instance, if the king of Germany, whatever, had a daughter who was going to get married, well, let's contact the famous composer Mozart and get him to compose a symphony that will be played at her wedding. And they'd cut Mozart a big check and he'd say, all right, what kind of music do you want? You want a piano concerto? You want a symphony? What do you want? I got a lot of stuff up here in the Rolodex of my mind. And they would say, well, how about a a flute concerto? All right. How, how does E-flat major sound? Good and, all right. And he'd go through the Rolodex of his mind, and he'd go to his work desk that night and just write it all out because it was already up here in his head. Now, that takes a real genius, right? But here's what I want you to see. Mozart foreknew, you see. He already had this entire masterpiece completely worked out in his mind, sometimes months, sometimes many years before he ever reduced it to writing. See, he already knew it. It was already in his mind. And what I want to suggest to you is that that is exactly the way the Lord knew you before the foundation of the world. The Lord knew exactly when you were going to be born. He knew exactly what the color of your eyes were going to be. He knew the exact color or colors of your hair. He knew, he knew every single thing about you before the foundation of the world. And it simply was that he knew exactly when you were going to be born and every single one of your days was already lined up. He foreknew you. The Greek word that is translated um, as predestined, we're going to get to in a minute, has to do with the horizon out there. And it was as if God could look all the way into the horizon of the future and he could see you and he knew you. But watch this. Paul says, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. He predestined you 
As a child of God, you have a divine destiny. You have a supernatural destiny. As I said just a moment ago, this word that is translated predestined, uh, it's prohorizo is, is the word. The word pro is a prefix which means before, and then horizo means to decide or to determine. And so we get our word horizon from that. And so when you think about God looking out over the entire course of history, he established your your destiny. He established the horizons of your life even before the world existed. Now you hear that and you think, well, what did he predestine me to? What did he predestine me for? Now usually when we talk in the Reformed churches about predestination, we are usually just talking about salvation and, and forgiveness of sins and being a recipient of God's grace and all that. And it is absolutely true that he did predestine you uh, to be a recipient of, of his grace and so forth. But I want you to see very clearly what Paul says here because he throws another aspect into this whole idea of predestination. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Listen, your destiny, your horizon is to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Your destiny is not simply to be a recipient of God's grace, a, a recipient of, of, of the goodies, a recipient of blessings. Your destiny that God has known about from before the foundation of the world is to be conformed, that is to be transformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That means you are to be Christ-like. You are to be conformed into his image. Your character is to become, or excuse me, his character is to become your character. His disposition is to become your disposition. You are to love the things he loves and you are to hate the things that he hates. Every aspect of your life whether it's your physical life, whether it's your financial life, whether it's your relationships, whatever, is to be infused, you see, with the very character of Jesus Christ. Paul says the same thing to us over here in Ephesians chapter 1. Listen to this. Ephesians 1 and verse 4, Paul says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's the second time where Paul is talking about predestination. And he says, he says, what have you been predestined to? You have been predestined to be holy. That is to be set apart for service to God. You have been predestined to be, to be uh, blameless. That is to be without spot or blemish. This is a moral calling, you see. He's not just calling us to be recipients of mercy and grace and all of that. That's, that's part of it. But Paul wants us to know that our predestining has to do with our being conformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And so I want to challenge you just on that one point to reflect on your own life and ask yourself the question, is this true about me? Do I hunger and thirst for righteousness? Am I striving to imitate Christ? 
One of the greatest uh, books ever written is called The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. He was, um, lived uh, back, I believe, in the 1400s and or maybe even the 1300s. They say that this is the second uh, most popular Christian book ever written besides the Bible. More people have, have read this book. It's called The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, and it is a spiritual classic. And if you've never read it, you need to read it. But in that book, he talks about the fact that it is our purpose in life. It is our goal in life. It is our destiny in life to live in imitation of Christ. And we have four Gospels. We have four Gospels that show us in excruciating detail how Jesus lived his life, how he related to other people, how he interacted with people, how he treated people, how he interacted with his enemies. And, and, and our destiny, Paul says, in life is to be conformed into that image. And notice what Paul next says. He says, he says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be, the he there is Jesus, in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. How many of you had an older brother? All right, I had an older brother. He, was two and a, he is two and a half years older than me. And, um, of course, when I was a small child, five years old, six years old, seven years old, man, I wanted to imitate my brother. Everything he did, I wanted to do, Right? If he was outside playing football, I wanted to play football. If he was outside playing baseball or basketball, I wanted to be outside playing that. If he was out there shooting mockingbirds with a BB gun, that's what I wanted to do. I just thought he was, you know, the, the greatest thing in the world. I wanted to be just like him. And, of course, I pestered him all the time. You know, him and his friends, you know, at that age, two and a half years, that's like light years, right? And I was always trailing along behind them. They're like, get out of here, little kid, you know? But see, I read this and I think, just like a small child looks up to his older brother and wants to be just like him and do just like him and act just like him, that's the attitude we should have. Jesus Christ is our elder brother. When we see him acting a certain way in the Gospels, we need to act that way. We should have that same childlike desire to be like our elder brother because he is the firstborn among many brothers. Now, so far, Paul has simply been talking here about acts of God that took place in eternity past. God foreknew us before the foundation of the world. God predestined us from before the foundation of the world. Okay, and these are two of the major building blocks, two of the major pillars of God's master plan. But in order for the rest of the plan to be worked out, it has to work itself out in history, right? And so Paul goes on in verse 30. Now he's going to bring us up from ages past, eternity past, into our own lives now. Look at what he says in verse 30. He says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. He also called. Listen, God foreknew you. Before the foundation of the world, he knew exactly who you were going to be and exactly every detail of your life. He predestined you at that time. He said, I'm, going, I'm, I'm giving this, this child of mine a divine destiny that he or she will be conformed to the image of my son. And then you were born. Whatever year that might have been, 1940, 50, 60, 70, 80, 
We probably don't have anybody in here born past 1980, so we'll stop there. But, but you were born on a specific day in a specific time, and part of God's plan was at some point in your life, he was going to call you. And God calls people in all sorts of different ways. There isn't just one way that he calls. His calling can be in, in any different whole multitude of ways. I think, for example, about the Apostle Paul. Paul was a, a Christian-hating Jewish zealot. And you know the story about how he was on his way to the city of Damascus to throw some Christians in jail. And he is on the road, and in an instant of time, just like that, he sees a blinding light from heaven. He falls with his face to the ground, and I love the way the old King James puts it. It says, the Lord Jesus looked down at Saul and said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Love the King James. But the Bible says at that very moment, the Apostle Paul knew that he was persecuting the followers of the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. He went from, in one instant, he went from being a complete hater of the ways of Christ to a follower of Jesus Christ just like that. Now, you may have had a Damascus Road experience in your life. Some of you probably have. Uh, I've talked to people before that have situations just like this. They may not have actually seen a physical blinding light, but we probably all know people who had an experience like that, where they just, God called them just in a moment of time, just like this. But God doesn't always work that way. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. There's another story, of course, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas were in the city of Philippi. And one morning they go out to the edge of town. There's a nice little river it's still there. I've been there. There's a little river flowing right outside the ancient city of Philippi. And they went out there to find a place of prayer. And as they were meeting there, two or three women from Philippi uh, came up to the river also. Now, they might have been there to maybe wash their clothes. Maybe they went there to get some water to take it back into town. We don't know. But these women uh, came and they started interacting with Paul and Silas. One of, their, one of the women's names was Lydia. And of course, it didn't take Paul very long. He started sharing the gospel with these ladies. And one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, it says, and the Lord opened Lydia's heart to receive what was being spoken by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. So Lydia didn't see a blinding light. She was converted by the preached word. Someone shared the gospel with her. And we, it's interesting, there were three or four other women there, but apparently Lydia was the only one that got converted. But she heard the word of God. She heard the, uh, the, the message of salvation and the Bible says the Lord opened her heart. The Lord called her, you see, through the message of Paul. Well, you hear that and say, well, I haven't had a Damascus Road experience. I haven't even had an experience like Lydia. You might look at your life and say, frankly, 
I don't know a time in my life when I didn't know the Lord. We, you know, we meet all sorts of people. I'm on the credentials committee of our presbytery, and we have these young, uh, young seminary graduates come in there, and probably 75% of those guys, we ask them, you know, give us your testimony, and they'll stand there, and the vast majority of them say, I never knew a day in my life when I didn't know the Lord. From the time I can remember, I just remember being a believer. I was raised in a godly uh, household. My mother and father took us to church and read the Bible to us and and, and so forth. And I've just always been a believer. But you know what I love about that? I think that is probably the most common way that God calls people into his family is with a godly family. And listen to this. This is over in the book of 2 Timothy. Paul, of course, was an old man. He was writing to Timothy. Listen to this. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Paul's writing to this young preacher, Timothy. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. See, Timothy was just like a lot of these young preachers we see today. They say, I've never known a day in my life when I didn't know the Lord. Why was Timothy able to say that? He was able to say that because he had a godly mother and he had a godly grandmother who nurtured him, who taught him the Bible, took him to worship, who explained the plan of salvation, who taught him how important it was to love Jesus. And it's interesting that Paul even knows their names. Lois, Eunice, your grandmother, godly woman, your mother, Eunice, godly woman. And Paul says, their faith, their faith now dwells in you. And so I simply want to challenge you in this regard. A lot of you are parents. A lot of you are grandparents. Don't think that your responsibility toward your younger members of your family sort of expires, you know, when your kids get to be 18, 19, 20, 21, and they leave the house. Timothy's grandmother had a very important role that she played in his life in leading him to the Lord and in ministering unto him and in sharing the gospel with him, his grandmother and his mother. Paul doesn't say anything about the father or the grandfather. We don't know much about them. We do know that Timothy's father was a Greek, which probably means he was a a, a Gentile, but In any event, we know that his grandmother and his mother were instrumental in bringing him to faith. I've talked to people before who say, you know, I've just never known a day when I didn't know the Lord. I've been a Christian my whole life. I kind of wish I had me one of those Damascus Road experiences. Don't ever say that. Don't ever say that. The reason I say that is because, number one, don't ever question God's sovereignty in your life. If God chose to call you in a certain way, then you you simply need to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. 
Don't question his sovereignty. But secondly, if you say, I wish I had been a pagan for 40 years, and then God called me out of the blue, really? You really look back on your life, and you really wish you spent all those years and decades in paganism? No, you don't. Listen, if you were raised in a godly family with a godly mother, a godly father, godly grandparents, and they ministered to you and they worked with you and they taught you the Bible and they took you to church. And if you don't know a single day in your life where you weren't a believer, you need to be on your knees every single day thanking the Lord that you did not go through years and decades of paganism. And that's the truth. Don't ever say you wish you had a Damascus Road experience. God calls one person one way and he calls other people other ways. The important thing is not so much how we're called. The important thing is that we are called. And so Paul says, those, who, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Now, we talk a lot in reform circles about justification. And it's good that we do. It's good that we do. And sometimes I think, though, that we, we, we sort of look at justification in, in, in too transactional a manner. You've probably heard uh, people say things like, well, justification is like you're in a courtroom. And God is sitting up there. He's the judge. He's sitting up there on the bench. And he just slams his gavel down on the, on the thing. And he, he pronounces you righteous. Okay. Well, all right, I'm not going to quibble with that. Um, there's a lot of truth to that because justification is God's righteous declaration that you are just. Even though you are a sinner, you have been predestined unto life and he has called you. And if you respond in faith and repentance, he justifies you. He declares you righteous on the basis of Christ's atoning blood. Okay, that's justification. But I think sometimes when we think of justification just in sort of transactional terms, we miss some of the beauty of the doctrine of justification by faith. And I think perhaps one of the best illustrations in all the Bible of what justification really looks like is the story of the prodigal son. Because in the story of the prodigal son, we don't have a judicial transaction. We have a very personal, relational transaction that takes place. You know the story. The son goes in the foreign country, wastes all of his money. He's out there throwing slop to pigs. And he finally comes to his senses and he says, you know, I need to go back home. Now, my father's not going to accept me because I've done all, this, uh, all of this wickedness. He says, but I'm going to go back. And in fact, it's interesting, the son is actually the one that wants to have a purely legal <laughs> transaction with his father. He says, I'm not worthy to be a son anymore, but I'm going to carry this, uh, maybe this contract and say, well, now will you at least hire me as one of your servants, you know? Just make me a servant. You'll give me room and board and maybe a little stipend and I'll live out here. I'm not going to be a son anymore. I'm just going to be a servant. But what happens? He's, he's got this whole speech prepared. And he's walking down the road, and the Bible says that his father saw him when he was yet a long way off. And what does the father do? The Bible says the father runs outside to meet him. 
The father runs up to him, and before the kid could even get many of the words of the speech out of his mouth, what has the father done? The father has hugged his neck, has kissed him, has said, put new sandals on his feet, put a ring on his finger, put a robe on him, kill the fatted calf. And this son, he didn't even get the whole speech out, okay? Listen, this was not an arm's length transaction. This was an open arms transaction, you see, where the father, this was a personal relationship that the father was trying to reestablish with his wayward son. And so I simply want to encourage you, when you think about justification, when you think about being made right with God, because that's what justification is, I want you to think of it in those terms. Think of it in relational personal terms, because that's what's happening. In justification, God is bringing a sinner to himself. He is restoring one of his own, and he is promising to sustain his own within the covenant. That's what justification is. It's not purely a legal transaction. It is a very personal, intimate relation, and that's what I want you to see. But Paul says, for those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And now we get to the end where Paul says, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, what's particularly interesting about this is that when we think of glorification, ordinarily we're thinking about the future, right? We're thinking about our future glorification when we will see the Lord face to face on the new earth and we will have received our resurrection bodies and we will spend the Lord, uh, spend eternity with the Lord and all of that. That's a, that is a future glorification. But Paul doesn't say in those whom he justified, he will glorify. He uses the past tense. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what's going on here? Well, let me just suggest two things for you as we bring this to a conclusion. In the first place, Paul knows that the fullness of our glorification is in the future. He knows that. He speaks about that in other places. But right here, he uses the past tense because he wants us to be so certain he wants us to be so assured of our future glorification that he can actually speak of it as an accomplished act. Your future glorification with God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ, on the new earth is so certain. Paul can speak of it as an accomplished fact. You have been glorified. Even though you're not going to see the full benefits and the full results of that until who knows how long, you have been glorified. There's no question about it. There's no, there's no speculation about whether it's going to come to pass or not. You have been glorified. So that's number one. But number two, we can't forget that in this life we already have entered into this whole process of glorification. It starts the moment you're justified. It starts the moment that the Holy Spirit begins to live on the inside of you and begins to equip you and empower you and enable you to live the Christian life. Peter says that he has given us, uh, he has made us to become partakers of the divine nature. Paul says that he has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's talking about now. Now. 
These are spiritual benefits, spiritual blessings that we have now, you see. We have already been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We have already begun this whole process of being transformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And all of that is glorious, you see. And so we have already begun this process of being glorified. He says later in the chapter that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Not a single thing. And then the whole discussion in, in Romans chapter 8 comes to this culmination when Paul says, when Paul says, we are not only conquerors, we are more than conquerors. Again, he's talking about this life. We are conquerors. We are winners, he says. There is no reason to go through life, Paul says, just sort of staring at the ground and just, oh, woe is me, woe is me. No. He says, listen, he, he says he's given you every single spiritual benefit in Christ. The love of God is never going to leave you. All things are going to work together for the good of you because you love the Lord. And you are more than a conqueror. And so I would argue that Paul uses this past tense here when he says you have been glorified. He's talking about your life right here, right now, that you have already entered into this very first initial phase of glorification that will not be completed until we see the Lord face to face on the new earth. And so this, my friends, is God's master plan. It is his, it is his master plan for your life and for the life of every single believer who has ever walked the face of the earth. He knew you from before the foundation of the world. He predestined you to become conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. He called you, he justified you, and he has already begun the process of glorifying you. In that process, we look forward to the day when we'll see the Lord face to face and we will spend eternity with him. And Heavenly Father, we are just so grateful for these promises we claim them by faith, and I just pray that you, would, that you would bury this message and these verses deep within the hearts of everyone in here. And I just pray that you would uh, continue to in, embolden us and continue to equip us to live the lives that you've called us to lead. And we pray all of it will be for your honor and your glory. Through Christ we pray. Amen.